I'm very happy to introduce Ellen Curry tonight. Um, she is in process of finishing a novel which is called Available Light. It's high-stepping, uh, wonderfully funny, uh, a beautiful story that we get in bits and pieces. It seems to me life is sometimes very foolish. She's a student of mine. I find that absurd. Um, last year I realized suddenly as chapters come in, suddenly there's a magic moment in which I said, ah, here is a book. It's going to be a book. And it was a marvelous feeling on my side of the desk. Available Light is filled with wonderful characters. They're, the prose is so rich, so energetic, so vital, uh, and it is ultimately a very serious book. I hope you'll enjoy her reading. Eudora Welty once said, when asked why she picked a certain story of Hawthorne's to read, she started out by saying, well, I just do love a story, and that's a good story. Well, Available Light is filled with good stories. Do enjoy it. I waited and waited and waited for Rambo to leave me. But would he? No, he wouldn't. Damn well wouldn't budge. Then one morning he was gone. I knew he was gone because both sets of car keys were on my chest, and so was Rambo's flea-chewed, grudge-holding little sour dog. The keys were to Rambo's car, of course. My car had better tires. Rambo was a gambler, if a man who never, ever wins can truly be said to be gambling. He had a lot of red hair on his shoulders and a little on the top of his head. He was a pretty good cook, a good cook, to be fair about it, a sweet-voiced man. He was housey. He liked to wax and polish, liked to run the vacuum cleaner, liked to iron. He really liked to iron, most particularly ruffles. There's no sound like the sound of a fine man bashing away at an ironing board. <laughs> I must say I missed that after Rambo left me. Rambo wasn't, strictly speaking, employed. He played a little hock shop saxophone, nothing too demanding. He never played the thing for me, even though I asked him. But I believed he could play it. Sometimes when he pawned it, he wore the next strap. I thought he was missing his saxophone, and I suspect I found that touching. It also made me jealous, but that's the way I am. I have an awful character. I mean, I really do. I knocked off my own father, but that's another story. <laughs> Rambo and I went into this knowing it wasn't permanent. We were just marking time. We were waiting for the real stuff, the good stuff, to start. And so we were careful. We weren't too confiding, and we made a point of believing each other. If he told me he earned enough playing club dates in Queens to cover himself at poker and blackjack and the track and the fights, I believed that. <laughs> and if he told me he loved me, I more or less believed that. If he told me he painted holy pictures holding the brush in his toes, I'd have believed that too. At the time that Rambo moved in, each of us was so grateful to the other for not being the last person we lived with that everything was roses. We knew it couldn't last, but it did. It lasted. Eileen, my sister, when things go wrong for her, which is always, says, I can't handle, deal with this, and then she digs out her rosary. Well, I couldn't handle deal with Rambo's, I think they call it splitting. And it happens that my rosary and I are on very distant terms. 
That wasn't Rambo, naturally. How could it be Rambo? An interim attachment, a man who gambled, had hair on his shoulders, liked to iron, wouldn't play a saxophone for me, criticized my poetry, stole my car, and abandoned a most unprepossessing dog. It wasn't really Rambo. It was just that Rambo's absence left a man-shaped hole in my life, an aperture that hope kept leaking out of. And I missed him in bed. He wasn't a one-man orgy, but he was chummy in bed, allowing for the baby talk and the chewing gum and the fact that he wore his drawers to keep, he said, the mystery. <laughs> and allowing, of course, for the goddamn dog. He had a companionable snore, Rambo. Once Rambo had fled my premises, I realized what utility he'd had. I never ate a decent meal anymore. Not that I'd actually eaten that many first-class meals with Rambo, but he left me first-class leftovers. Now I was back to tofu and tofranil and diet Dr. Pepper. Now I was back to gnawing on my kneecaps, alone in my bed, hungry and remorseful. I wished I'd let old Rambo take that Chinese cooking course he wanted. I wished I hadn't boggled at the cost of the cleavers and the knives. I called my mother up, Our Lady of the Perpetual Cardigan. Fifty years out of the slums of Derry, pink and white and tough as a boot. Hello, Mickey, I said to my mother. It's me, it's not Eileen. Is he still living with you, my mother said. A not unfamiliar salutation. <laughs> what she really said or squalled at me was more like, is he still living with you? Because she knows this poor old boggy witter woman dialect goes to my very heart. Ho, oh, I said. What's this his name is, my mother said. Is he still living with you? No, I said, he's gone. Oh, sweet divine, my mother said, I'm passing no remark. I know every wheel and turn of you. I know you all roads and directions to think that any daughter of mine and so on, blah, 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 etc. <laughs> Ma, I'm so unhappy, I said to my only mother. Oh, well, now, she said, there's nothing to roar and cry about. No, nothing. You'll do rightly. I will, I said. I was cozying up. My mouth was all fixed for some sweetness. Oh, gosh, she said, you little whore, you wasn't new when he got you, and thwack, she hung up the phone. <laughs> well, what did I expect, I ask you? She's big, queenie thumbscrews. Eileen came and stayed with me two nights. It was nice having Eileen there, though not as nice as Rambo. Oh, nice, nice, as if nice had to do with it. Eileen is a far nicer person than Rambo, any way you look at it. I told her so, sitting with her in my kitchen, drinking the softest, reddest wine that Nasty Rambo bought with my nice money. Eileen said, of course she was nicer. I was nicer than Gordon, too. And we sat there, drunken sisters, facing one more ancillary verity. What kind of man deserts his dog, Eileen said, in that tragic way we have? What kind of man deserts me? Oh, you, Eileen said, you. You drove the bugger out, that's you. Well, of course she had a point there. I'd been after him to go. What kind of man was he, anyhow? A gambler, a man who put his dollar down on me a little while and lost it. I can't get involved, not really involved, with a man like that. I've got a life coming up. I'm just stretching my hamstrings before I take the run. Of course, I've been doing that a while now, but I'm a staller. That's my nature. I just stole. And I have plenty to stall about, being what you might call murderous when I really hit my stride. But Rambo? Oh, I'm giggling in my cuff. Rambo was a stall. After Eileen went home to her husband, the dog and I settled down to feeling lousy. We hung around the house, letting gravity attack us. 
Rambo's plants went droopy. His neglected avocado pits shriveled or festered, according to their karmas. A thin and varied compost filmed and furred and felted itself on my tables, my chairs, my rugs. The miasma that lingers under the sinks and even the best-run establishments spread through the house. The house I felt was missing, Rambo. It wanted its window panes rinsed in ammonia water, its carpet sponged with vinegar, its refrigerated urine for an open box of baking soda, its cupboards for little tiny tins of saffron and glass tubes sheltering vanilla beans. The dog and I were unequal to all these demands. We tried going out for walks, but the dog wasn't much of a walker. It is no easy thing to carry a dog that bites. <laughs> and then, too, the dog and I couldn't stray far from the telephone in case it should cry out and require our assistance. The next little section is called Dreams, and I should say, uh, before I read it, that after Rambo and Kitty flee each other, each of them is taken up by um, a sort of odd person. Rambo is taken up by a girl called Dorinda, usually awful Dorinda. And, <laughs> the, uh, and Kitty has an admirer who uh, is called Mr. Conrad. He admires, but he does not touch her. And this section is called Dreams. Rambo dreams. His dreams are rapt and vivid. Rambo flies. He spreads his arms. He pushes off. He catapults aloft. He soars. His power and control excite him. Prone and supine, he rolls upon and rides the waves of loosened air. Kitty dreams in simple, saturated color. She sits in a tub. The tub is stony, high-sided, white, and scintillating. The water is a rich and plummy blue. This tub, she knows, is a dog's small drinking trough. It exists somewhere outside a New York shop. She appears, nonetheless, to have plenty of room. The water is chill. There is dog spit in it. Her situation is not comfortable. With a crusty lump of brilliant coral, she scrubs at a pair of unfamiliar feet. These feet are nasty, calloused, bleeding. They are an occasion of shame. When she has worn them down to something wonderful, she will slide between smooth sheets with her lover, mysterious Rambo. It is uphill work. Kitty shivers. Even in her dream, she is irritated. Even in her dream, she knows this dream will make a dreadful poem. In his dream, Rambo, flying, extends his hand and closes it upon the wrist of Kitty, now beside him. His thumb rests on her pulse point. Her life ticks there beneath his fingers. He is her magic. Without him, she will fall. She wears his old blue pleated evening shirt. It flutters sweetly about her warm, bare thighs. Her white hair streams. It whips across her mouth. She is frightened. She is smiling. Kitty wakes in anger. She has bitten the inside of her mouth. She is cold. The dog has taken all the blankets. The dog is making twittery, tweety, bird-song, dreaming noises. Wake up, dog, Kitty says. The dog's paws scrabble against her arm. Its pads are coarse. She can feel its black, doggy toenails. It is pumping and pushing against her arm, thrusting its paws most desperately, like paddles or like wings. Are you sick, she says? Are you horny? <laughs> she is touched and repelled by the feel of its feet. These are not the terms of their agreement. The dog wakes angry. There is drool on its chin. The, the dog turns three times, each time eyeing her. She makes no attempt to reclaim her blankets. The dog lies down with its rump at her cheek. The whole hind end of it is on her pillow. <laughs> Listen to reason, dog, she says. 
The dog backpedals. It's infuriated ass, tilts up her chin. She thinks of a thing her mother says to her. Kitty, lie over. You're next to the wall. Rambo flies. His left arm ends in a saxophone. His right arm ends in Kitty. They climb and climb. Their heads bump the glass rooftop of the world. They can fly no higher. From the ground, a sound of joyful barking. Rambo looks at Kitty. He finds his new lover, pregnant Dorinda, instead. Dorinda grips his hand with both of hers. She barks in her sleep. She snores. Worn out, he supposes, from sloshing him with scented oils and slobbering on his toes. Awful Dorinda, gravid, dreamless, sleeps. And this next bit is about Kitty. Kitty. Poor Kitty does not thrive. She does not prosper. Limp with fatigue, she huddles on half of the bed once shared with Rambo. She does not sleep. Or sometimes she does sleep. Sleep, sleep, long, sweaty sleeps that obscure the day's ends and beginnings. She does not eat at all, or sickened and starving. She stirs together greasy sweet messes, gobbles them, repents. Her body thickens, but her cheekbones jut. Her complexion has a gray, translucent pallor and an unbecoming sheen. I am dying of a broken heart, says Kitty. She knows this is absurd. Women do not die of breaking hearts. A broken heart is a metaphor, says Kitty. She says this to the dog, which glooms about the house, fasting, gorging, shitting in the closets or on the few decent rugs, surly and wise-looking, visibly wasting. Dogs, she knows, do die of broken hearts and indeed are congratulated for it. <laughs> Kitty is swollen, engorged with sorrow and self-pity, tumid, flooded, so filled up that it spills out all her orifices nastily. Her bladder burns, her entrails are molten, her big eyes slosh out scalding tears, her ears are wet and muck drips from her nose. Once in a while she bleeds a little very dark blood. Two possible events inform her day. Rambo may telephone. There may be a letter from Rambo. She cannot approach a mailbox, any mailbox, with composure. The thought of a mailbox contorts her gut. She takes no jobs. She has an answering device connected to her telephone. She has recorded for it in a false, skipping voice a statement that says Kitty is still knocking around Paris but is expected to return any day. <laughs> because she is so frightened of missing Rambo's call, she lifts the phone each time it rings, and her callers hear repeatedly her true and muddy voice blatting out over the cheery lying one. She wants to talk about Rambo. She wants to talk of their lovemaking, to tell someone how, when they made love, he slipped his hand between her shoulder blades and raised her tenderly toward him. But there is, she knows, no audience for this. Each night as she lies on the same glum sheets, she is glad that the day is over. It is her only moment of honest gladness. One day down, another day coming, a day on which Rambeau may write, may call. She must hear from him. She must talk with him. She has something important to tell him, though what that something is she does not know. The demented dog roams the house. It will not have its chain removed. The chain trails after it, noisy, noisy as the chains of the family ghost. And this last piece is much later in the book, when Kitty has had many Rococo adventures. 
<laughs> and so has Rambo. And it's called uh, Kitty Gets a Letter from Rambo. One morning early, Kitty returns to her house, exhausted. In the living room, Mr. Conrad, Kitty's admirer, has made up a bed for her on the couch. He has removed from her linen closet for this purpose new flowered sheets she'd been saving for some celebrational occasion. The prospect of a bed on the couch in the daytime makes her feel like a convalescent child, a feeling she quite enjoys. She knows, too, that Mr. Conrad, who makes free with her house keys, her car keys, her linen closet, who snoops and spies and trails her, would not step uninvited into her bedroom, even if her bedroom were empty. On the couch is a white nightgown, virginal and new. She has never seen it. It lies there as though it covered a slender, invisible girl. Its waist is made small with pinched-in pleats. Its skirt spread prettily. Its sleeves, for it has sleeves, so placed that the ghost girl's hands might be folded on her breasts. Folded, Kitty sees, on two envelopes. The smaller contains a note in Mr. Conrad's steepled script. She reads no more than, Kitty, dear, forgive me, but I am getting so in love with you. There is more, and the note is signed with Mr. Conrad's name, his real name, debonair and daunting, elegantly penned. She knows at once that the other envelope contains the letter from Rambeau. She holds the envelope in both her hands and rubs it. It is worn, gray, and downy. One of the corners has a little hole in it. There is nothing on the envelope, no address, no name. It is blank and unsealed. Inside it is another envelope, this one addressed to her in Rambo's handwriting. It. At the sight of it, her heart begins to hammer. This envelope is quite as worn as the other. She has a clear, ringing vision of its perils and its present safety. She studies this envelope, a white, plain envelope. It seems to her extraordinary, singular and handsome in its specificity. She presses it to her cheeks and to the cruel dog bites that smolder near her eye. She opens her blouse and strokes it over her neck and chest and breasts. She examines it. It has a stamp but no postmark and no return address. She touches her tongue to the stamp's uncancelled face. She does not wonder at nor think about the significance of the missing postmark. She does not regret nor resent the lack of a return address. The envelope bulges virgins with a message from Rambo. What he has to say may not please her, but the fact that he has anything at all to say must please her very much. Kitty stands in her living room, holding Rambo's letter in two hands. She is inspirited. Her breath comes easy. Her mouth is moist with hope. Clear, bright morning light sifts through her old lace curtains, dulcet, clean. It blesses what it touches. For the first time, she feels the loosening, the giving way of the meshes and snares of old anguish. For the first time, she feels her griefs to be voluntary and ignoble, personal and implausible. Kitty sees that her mother is right. It is time she got up and got on with it. To do that, she thinks she must start by being what she has never been, still. She must be quiet. She must be patient, be waiting, be like milk in a dish, like flour in a bowl, like the apple core forgotten on her windowsill, transfigured by the sun. She steps into Mr. Conrad's bridal nightdress and tucks Rambo's letter into its demure and dainty bodice. She stretches herself upon the flowered couch prepared for her. 
She moves very carefully. She is a stranger to tranquility and fears to startle it away. Kitty listens. She hears Grace hovering. She hears the aches fly out of her bones, the diligent blood run humming through her veins, the faint creak, the rustle of the letter at her living heart. She prays to be done with wretchedness and desolation, subjugation and defeat. She practices keeping her mouth shut. Um, my name is Cynthia Ozick, and it's a treat, a pleasure, and a joy to be here to introduce Eve Ottenberg, who might... Is this working? Should I make it higher? Is that okay? Right, okay. All right. Um, she came to interview me, Eve Ottenberg, and I kind of interviewed her back and discovered a wonderful mind, um, um, an intellect with... An exciting and surprising ironic twist. And as I got to know a little more about her, um, I think just contemplating her gives me a kind of bliss. Um, she is like, believe it or not, she's like the early Dickens. Um, she was, I, I hope you don't mind if I tell your age, she was 28 last year when I met her. That means she's 29 now. And um, she had already, she was an editor on the Soho News then, and she had written for the Village Voice, and she was already a court reporter, a city hall reporter. She knows real estate, the business end of it. She has been a reporter in housing court. She has seen Jarndyce versus Jarndyce. She knows every nook and cranny of society. She's done abundant book, read, abundant book reading and, and TV book reading. True, yes, book reviewing and uh, TV reviewing. Now, I first knew her through her journalism. Uh, knew that there was a novel, but had never seen it. And I read her journalism um, with more bliss. It had interesting qualities. Well, thorough, conscientious goes without saying. But I felt in what it was, quote, merely journalism, the mortality in human actions of which she was conscious, and hence the pathos, hence the, the comedy. And a sense, in spite of the vitality, the youthful vitality in the journalism, that she knows that not everything interesting begins and ends in one's own ego. And so there's, in Eve Ottenberg, an enormous interest in things as they are in society. One of the characters that she's going to introduce to us in her reading um, is called Cla uh, Clara. She's a character you'll have a sense of recognition and surprise at the same time, sample phrase, her mind, straying ironically around. And that is Eve Ottenberg's mind. Her mind strays ironically around. Well, I knew her journalism. I didn't know her fiction. And I thought, what would her fiction be like? She's already written a huge, big novel about, with full of court characters. Think of Mr. Pickwick. And, um, and 
the world of the courts in general, and that book is called The Widow's Opera, and as far as I know, it has not yet been published, and I'm sure it will be. The second one, from which she's reading tonight, is called Glum and Mighty Pagans. One of the reasons, I think, the difficulty with publishing the first one was that it was incredibly ambitious, huge, big. Um, now, you will see that the hand of society sets its imprint on the mind of the characters. This isn't solitary fiction, like so much of the fiction of our time. I want to read you uh, just a very quick short quote from Susan Sontag that appeared in an interview with her in the New York Times Book Review a few weeks ago. Um, Sontag says, I want to write fiction which is not solipsistic, in which there is a real world that is not just a depressed world of someone very pained, as so much of contemporary fiction is. I think the novel is far from being exhausted. On the contrary, a lot of it hasn't been explored. Now, it seems to me that what Eve is doing is taking advantage of America. She's writing about America. America has not been a subject in fiction since the end of World War II. It's been the subject of satire and black humor, but it hasn't been a serious subject taken for its own, its own matter. And this is what Eve Ottenberg can do and is doing. And again, it's like Dickens, but Dickens brought to fruition in, in our time. So listen, listen for the character who is imbued with the sense of society. It's very thrilling, and I know you'll enjoy it. Thank you. Okay. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I'd rather sit. Okay. 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 Is that good? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, as you know, I'm Eve Ottenberg. <laughs> I don't know what more I can say. Um, before I start, I should say uh, that I'll be reading from the fourth scene in the first chapter of Glum and Mighty Pagans, and the story is about Clara Chimes, a girl whose parents are dead and who has been raised by her wealthy grandmother. Um, at the point I'll be reading from, Clara is 17, and the time is the early 1970s. Clara's grandmother has died, and she has just arrived in New York um, City to live with her aunt. She's been an excellent science student, and she wants to continue in that direction, but... Um, She's discovering that her aunt is determined to have her go into the family business, which is real estate. Can you hear? Is the, is is the microphone working? Is this better? That's better. That night, Clara unpacked her few possessions, mainly clothes and books, in her room on the second floor of the duplex. Aside from the bed placed next to the window with its wonderful view of the park, Clara also had a Chippendale desk and dresser, a comfortable wing-back armchair covered in green silk, 
and an immense walk-in closet. Her aunt had thoughtfully placed a vase of irises beside the elegant blue glass lamp that stood on the night table. The carpet, green and blue, with its repeating pattern of peacocks and temples, had a vaguely oriental look. The curtains had a similar pattern. There was no bookcase, so Clara stored her little library on the closet floor. After putting a framed photograph of her father and mother on the night table, she undressed and curled up on the bed with the book that had caught her aunt's eye. History even suggests that the scientific enterprise has developed a uniquely powerful technique for producing surprises of this sort, she read. If this characteristic of science is to be reconciled with what has already been said, then research under a paradigm must be a particularly effective way of inducing paradigm change. Clara put the book down to ponder these words. She tried to fit them to what she had learned in her senior year of advanced high school physics. I prob probably won't really be able to see what it means, she thought, until I've had some college courses. But then she remembered a remark of her aunt indicating that she might not be going to college, and as she contemplated this possibility, she began to grow uneasy and alarmed. There was no other way, she knew, for her to learn more physics and math. And in even so brief an absence from these subjects as a summer, she always forgot something which had to be relearned in the fall. She closed the book and gazed anxiously out the window at the lights of the city, which danced like molecules in the darkness. Perhaps, she thought, combing her short chestnut hair with her fingers, she could save enough money working for her uncle in the summer to pay for her education in September. She had not even bothered to apply for scholarships. A girl with such a wealthy aunt and grandmother as she could hardly expect to get one. If only Grandmother Darlinger had not died. She, at least, had left Clara alone in her pursuits. She had not understood the science that so fascinated her precocious granddaughter and had even called Clara's interest in it unwomanly. But the thought that Clara might spend her life peering into an electron microscope was no more offensive to her than that of any other occupation the girl might have aside from raising a family. Grandmother Darlinger was a woman, as she liked to say, of the old school. Fiercely provincial, anti-cosmopolitan, sternly religious, distrustful of education, and vigorously opposed to racial integration, Jews, Democrats, anyone who was not rich, and the income tax. These were the subjects on which she liked to hear her preacher expand, on an, and on which she would el elaborate during the intermissions of Billy Graham's evangelical TV show. Clara had learned years ago just not to listen. If she had, it would have wounded and then bored her, and her grandmother never intended and would never have wanted to do either. On the one occasion when Clara had become upset, it had made old Mrs. Darlinger cry. Oh, but Clara, she had said, as the tears settled on her wrinkled cheeks, I love you so much, I never even think of you as Jewish. I love you even more than I loved your mother. This had not been something Clara particularly wanted to know, though she had, on the occasions when her grandmother recriminated against Madeline Chimes, suspected it. Madeline had been willful and unloving, Mrs. Darlinger observed. She had done rash, foolish things. It was no surprise that she and her husband had gone through the windshield. They had been drinking and were undoubtedly speeding.
miracle they had had the good sense not to take their four-year-old daughter along with them. Nonetheless, old Mrs. Darlinger was sure that in her first four years of life, Clara had suffered irreparable exposure to the unwholesome company of jazz musicians, actors of questionable masculinity, alcoholics, kept women, communists, frequenters of racetracks and fights, and other such unspeakable lowlife. Perhaps she was right. Clara did have an unaccountable liking for such people, but never much to her grandmother's relief, enough to distract her for very, for very long from mathematics. Her interest in this discipline had withdrawn her to a great extent from the social world. Not habituated to the company of others, Clara had become shy and had the rather distracted air of one whose mind is not on the people and things before her and who, therefore, tends always to be surprised by them. On the whole, Mrs. Darlinger had thought this awkwardness rather a good thing. It would, she correctly judged, keep the girl out of trouble with sex, something which Mrs. Darlinger was wont to exclaim, there seemed so much more of than in the past. It was all over television, filled the magazines, and in the warm weather the young women went about so scantily clad that half the time it seemed to her they might as well be stark naked. It had been a difficult time to raise a child, especially for a widow in her 70s. The kids, as Mrs. Darlinger called them, who were just a few years older than Clara, had been demonstrating against the government in the streets, taking drugs, refusing their military service, and in general behaving like barbarians. The youth of the nation was confused, and for this Mrs. Darlinger, unlike most of her Republican friends, did not blame the kids, but their diet and their parents. The wrong food, Mrs. Darlinger was convinced, could lead to the most unpredictable behavior. Too much Coca-Cola could make anyone jumpy. Clara was never allowed to drink it before lunchtime, and she was as calm and uninterested in politics as could be. And though Mrs. Darlinger herself was addicted to sweets, these two, she knew, could imbalance a person. All those kids had undoubtedly gone off to college and eaten nothing but sweets, Coca-Cola, and, worst of all, pizza. This, Mrs. Darlinger, had long regarded as a dangerous foreign food, liable to cause indigestion, pimples, and an addled mind. Mrs. Darlinger thought it no accident that in one of the shots on TV of an angry crowd converging on Washington, Several teenage girls were eating slices of pizza. <laughs> Clara was warned never to touch the stuff. Thirteen years under the gastronomical tyranny of her grandmother had left Clara utterly indifferent to food. She could not cook and indeed hardly ever noticed what she ate. She, what she did notice was that at certain times of the day she was hungry, at which point she just opened the refrigerator and ate whatever was there. If she was outside the house, she would get a cheeseburger and a 7-Up, which she usually ate while walking wherever she had to go. Fortunately, she had never had to worry about her weight. As a child, she was skinny, as a teenager, slender. Her grandmother, very proud of Clara's figure and seeing in it a confirmation of her own dietary beliefs, lavished clothes upon her, to which Clara, in her mathematical preoccupation, was also indifferent. This did not bother old Mrs. Darlinger, who chose to see in Clara's attitude a healthy Christian unconcern for the things of this world. In short, Mrs. Darlinger was convinced that she had raised a perfect child and done it much better than her inept daughter Maddie ever could have. And if, on occasion, the thought strayed across her mind that Clara's complete innocence could more accurately be attributed to her total absorption in an abstract world than to her rigorous upbringing, 
Mrs. Darlinger never really believed it. The only real danger for Clara, the only one that had actually caused Mrs. Darlinger to fret, was the thought of who she might marry. The old woman had spent hours pondering this matter. She was fond of imagining Clara married to a Congregationalist. Anything else somewhat disturbed her happy picture of Clara's future. But when such thoughts did beset her, she would quickly succumb to the most extreme pessimism, telling herself, like mother, like daughter. At such moments, she invariably began to think that perhaps it would be better for Clara not to get married at all. Fortunately, Clara was too preoccupied and too beleaguered by her watchful old grandmother to be very interested in anyone. Her parents, had they been alive, might have worried that she was so solitary. Old Mrs. Darlinger, however, had less and less energy to supervise Clara as she approached adulthood and therefore regarded her relative isolation with relief. That isolation, as Clara saw it, however, was more accidental than anything else. Because she undertook a heavy curriculum of advanced physics and math throughout high school, the students she spent most of her time with were all brainy whiz kids, or, in the deadly accurate vocabulary of adolescence, nerds. In her spare time, Clara liked to imagine herself falling in love at once and forever, like in the movies. The problems with this delightful fantasy were twofold. Every time she considered this scene of dramatic, romantic recognition, her mind, straying ironically around, could not picture this wonderful Hollywood embrace without also envisioning her knocking over some glass beaker of hydrogen chloride in the process. To make matters worse, the only near approximation that she had ever encountered in the flesh to the man of her dreams was Stanley Katz, a student a few years older than her and very unlikely ever to be found anywhere in the vicinity of a laboratory. Stanley, whose father owned a racetrack outside of Miami, had all but flunked out of school. Stanley's interests, she could not help but observe, were extremely limited. They extended mainly to lying on his surfboard in the Gulf as much of the time as possible, and to trying to trick her into going, into bed, going to bed with him. This Clara was just too nervous to do. She was afraid of getting pregnant, afraid she might get a disease, and afraid of her grandmother finding out, and afraid that if she did this, he might lose interest in her, because then, after all, there would be no point to his second most favorite pastime. Further removing Stanley from her dreams of romance was the fact that he did things like drink ketchup out of the bottle at the local Burger King, fall asleep at all but the goriest drive-in movies, read comic books, made bets on everything from the World Series to how long it would take to walk to the corner, and called Clara a Jap. Lying on his stomach, his blonde hair flopping over the edge of his surfboard, he would try to entice her to go up to Boca Raton for the evening for a botching, boxing match. He would watch her eyes widen with interest at his detailed descriptions of the fighters and the fights as she lay on her surfboard next to his. Then, when he judged his listeners sufficiently interested, would commence a recitation of great boxing catastrophes, blindings, and the like. Clara would in invariably begin to chicken out and start making excuses. These sessions usually ended with Clara paddling away and Stanley paddling after her, shouting out detailed descriptions of the blood and gore of the ring. He had ultimately gone off to Tallahassee State University, to the utter amazement of his family, Clara, and anyone who knew him. Once or twice, he had driven down in his noisy red Chevy to pick Clara up, 
then driven her up to Miami to the racetrack, the radio blaring all the way and trying to get her to bet against him on which hit singles were in the top 40. Her fondest and indeed most vivid memory of him was looking for a place to park one fine afternoon after a rain out beyond the horse stalls. You smell something, he asked, stopping the car in what looked to be the middle of nowhere. Clara, gagging on one of his cigarettes, could not smell a thing. Ahead of them, on a little rise just off, off the highway, a man was gesturing frantically. P.U., I don't know if I want to park here, Stanley said, stepped out of the car, sank and then tripped into a whitish muck. Clara gasped from the overpowering stench of sour milk and held her nose. Several thousand gallons of it from a truck overturned hours before had soaked into the mud. They did not go to the races that day. Stanley, glowering, cursing, and, to tell the truth, stinking, spent the rest of the afternoon disinfecting himself and his vehicle and accusing Clara of giggling at him. I'm not giggling, she had lied. I just bet you five dollars we go into McDonald's and everyone in the place starts sniffing. That had been ten months ago, before Mrs. Darlinger became ill and before Clara had ever dreamed that she would live in New York. After her grandmother's death, Stanley had phoned to announce that he was driving down. But Clara had explained that there was no time. She had to hurry and pack and move. And as she stood in Mrs. Darlinger's large, quiet apartment, filled with costly antiques, and told him to stay in Tallahassee, she imagined him there at the other end of the line, listening, tall and blonde and handsome like the eternal beach boy, and wondering if he should just drive down in his noisy red Chevy anyway. In the end, he did, despite her protests, and she missed her plane to New York. I think there's seats in the back. Friends of mine growing up in the suburbs of Buffalo, New York. At, at age seven, I think it was Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. In the seventh grade, it was Jeffrey Hartman's essay, Romanticism and Anti-Self-Consciousness. And a few years ago, I remember handing out Paul Goodman, tomes of Paul Goodman to everyone, and that wonderful essay by Joan Didion on self-respect that I thought everyone should read. Recently, I've been going around handing out copies of a superbly short and brilliant essay entitled What Literature Means. That essay was written by Cynthia Ozick and appeared in the Partisan Review. In that essay, Ms. Ozick speaks of responsible literature, of a redemptive literature that distinguishes one life from another. I think Ellen Brown's fiction is just such a literature, tracing individual lives through an awareness of spoken and written language or languages. A playwright and fiction writer, Alan assumes that often frightening responsibility of looking for the human and humane qualities within these particular lives of ours. I won't tell you that, that Alan's writing is morally redemptive. I'm really not in the position to tell you anything here tonight, but I shall introduce him to you as a young, fine, responsible writer, Alan Brown. to do anything with these. Yeah. Okay. I think I could probably can you hear me back there? It's okay. Be recording if we get some okay. okay. I'll move over a little bit. All right. Okay. Okay. I'm gonna read a short story called Riverbeds. 
Sundays, they went to church. The minister talked to his congregation about hope and prayer and the mysterious ways of the Lord. And each week, the pews grew more crowded with anxious, parched faces. Sometimes they drove down over the county line to visit their married sister. Going along the river, they could plainly see how it had shrunk. New islands rose up in the middle, and the pools, shaded by withering willows, were turning to stagnant marshes, the marshes turning to clay. Once, brother stopped the truck along the bank and got out. He bent down to scoop up a handful of clay, but the earth was so hard that his fingers couldn't pierce the surface. In town one Saturday afternoon, he bought a Panama hat that he could fold up in his back pocket when he went indoors, and Dolly picked out a red scarf to keep the sun off her scalp, and a pair of wraparound sunglasses that looked like two oval mirrors balanced on the narrow bridge of her nose. No one could look in, and when she wore them, sad-eyed shopkeepers disappeared into cool shadows. There was practically nothing left to do on the farm, so Mondays through Fridays they mostly crouched down close to the linoleum floor in the kitchen, the coolest room in the house. Dolly made pitchers of lemonade with ice cubes, and Brother would take the big glass pitcher, decorated with hand-painted water lilies, into his thick hands and rub it back and forth across his forehead. Dolly sometimes ran a dish rag under the faucet, cooled it in the icebox, then tucked it up under her dress and kept it there, squeezed between her thighs. In the fourth month of the drought, Brother drove a man up from the valley to the north who could, it was said, find water with a willow branch. But the man ran his bowed divining rod up and down their property, scratching the skin of the earth with its, with its sharpened tip without finding anything. Point it up to heaven, Brother yelled in rage when the man gave them back their money. Why don't you point the goddamn thing up to heaven and make it rain? Dolly was frightened, for all of the blood drained out of Brother's face, and she watched his big hands shake. She did almost nothing for the next few months except try to keep him calm. Sit easy, Dolly would say. You'll be a lot cooler if you just stay still. Dolly would stand behind Brother's chair and rock him back and forth like a baby while he read from the Bible. She would hum all the church songs she knew, but it never rained. Each morning the sky stretched tighter and tighter, and when they drove the pickup truck up to the rise each night after supper, it was clear as far as they could see. The first time they brought a boy home, it was a Friday night, and they went into town for a meal at the Italian restaurant. Brother ordered them a full bottle of red wine, and he grew loud, said when Dolly protested that they deserved a little pleasure for putting up with this drought, didn't they? That first boy was a hitchhiker on his way home from a date with a town girl, and he was willing right away for Dolly, and it wasn't until later that night he found out Brother would want him too. Dolly herself was surprised, for Brother was always quiet about those things. But when they were finished and they walked out to the truck, drops of rain speckled the dirt in the front yard. It was only a small shower, hardly enough to wet the surface. It didn't help the crops, and the river paid it no attention at all. But Brother, he was convinced, and when it happened the second time, with the blue-eyed boy from over in Willows, well, then Dolly herself prayed like crazy in church, and from then on she kept a lookout for boys. 
It was mostly she who found them while brothers stayed back at the farm, and even with all their efforts and praying, it wasn't certain to work. The drought didn't break, and the occasional showers they did ring out of the sky brought nothing but false hopes. When Dolly first noticed him, she didn't dare say anything to brother, but for three Saturdays running, she drove the pickup truck into town to the ice cream parlor. She drove with the window shut, for the wind the truck stirred up singed her face and the dust settled on her cheeks and in the hollows below her eyes like talcum. All around her the land was bleached white and nothing stirred in the afternoon sun. The boy dipped down into the frosty case, his smoothly muscled arm disappearing and then coming up with scoop after scoop of the rich hard ice cream. French vanilla, caramel, dark chocolate, sherbets, lime, lemon, and coconut, like a drink of sinfully sweet water when they burst on her tongue. She prodded him with questions as he scooped, and he invented fanciful Sundays for her with too much whipped cream and really more chocolate than was necessary. She coaxed him, school, cars, basketball, girls. Dolly watched and listened enthusiastically, ate her Sundays with real gusto. My, what a perfect, perfect name for a handsome boy in an ice cream shop, she laughed when Jonathan Pink first introduced himself. There were no customers in the store at the time, and Dolly leaned her elbows on the damp marble counter, rested her heart-shaped face in her hands. Outside, fugitives from the sun slinked along the sides of buildings, careful to keep in the shade of the storefront awnings along Main Street. Dolly was wearing her best, a sleeveless cotton that had grown tight over the years. But the flowers hadn't faded, she took care, and so she was all wrapped up in an endless chain of yellow daisies. The boy blushed and she laughed again, Jonathan Pink with pink, pink cheeks like roses. Yes, ma'am, the boy said, it's a hot one, isn't it? Wonder if it will ever rain again. Oh, it will, Dolly said, it will, I can feel it in my bones. She smoothed her dress, ran both hands slowly down the front, careful that the boy saw her breast pushing against the thin cloth. Too hot to wear any clothes at all, really. Why, this morning I just slipped this little thing right over my head, and not a stitch on underneath either. It's so light I feel like I'm stark naked. Jonathan Pink stared outright at her breasts, and Dolly felt her nipples grow hard. Everyone tells me I look younger than my age, she said, and she ran a small finger round and round one nipple, practically hypnotizing the boy right there in the ice cream parlor. My name is June Jordan, and I feel it's my privilege tonight to introduce to you a young friend of mine who's a young poet named Zach Rogo uh, on a letter that he sent to me, which is bizarre. Uh, he says that he's been writing poems regularly for nine years. His poems have been published in numerous magazines, including the American Poetry Review, Telephone, Home Planet News, and Wynn Magazine. He is the co-translator of The Dice Cup, a book of prose poems by the French writer Max Jacob, published by Sun Press. And he has also co-translated Earthlight, a book of poems by André Breton. I first met Zach when I was teaching at Yale, and he was a student at Yale. And uh, there he was one of my very favorite people because 
I always look forward to our weekly conferences because Zach's work was so extremely interesting to me and extremely intelligent. I felt I was learning a lot from him, so I looked forward to it. In addition, uh, I felt that what he was doing in translation was uh, enormously important. At that point, as I said, he was still a student. As you see, he's continued that. No one that I know, even 10 years uh, the senior to Zach, has done more in an activist way to further the cause of a distinctively American body of letters. He has really been zealous and um, altruistic in his devotion to the uh, promotion of the art of poetry, not his poetry, the art of poetry that's produced by diverse peoples in this country, both his compeers and people older than he is and younger than he is. So in many, many respects, this is an exceptional young human being. He's also a very gifted poet. I'm very happy to introduce him to you, Zach Rogo. <clears throat> Thanks very much. I'd like to read a series of poems. The first one is titled Four Men. I wrote it about four years ago. Four Men. It starts so early, the father roughhousing the child. A punch in the shoulder is affection. You stash your tears away where only you can find them, because if you do anything disordinary, they call you faggot. And you don't want to give a pack of boys your own age a reason to pounce. Then the teenage need for sex drives you crazy. If you could talk about it with someone who's passing through the same thing. But male friends only give each other the iron handshake. We stop hoping for comfort, but don't tell me you don't know what it is. Don't tell me you don't need it, because I know you turn to someone when a nightmare throws you off and your heart's racing. We men have been cruel enough to love beauty, and it's gotten us nowhere. Time's running out, guys. For once, can we give each other what women have shared with women for so long they wouldn't have survived us without it? Can we allow ourselves to hug one another and listen, not just when we say hello or goodbye, but when we need it? I'm going to read a series of short poems that I call one-liners, and they're very, 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 very short. The first one is called, How We Learn. Angry butterflies denounce caterpillars. The second one <laughs> is entitled, The U.S. Postal Service. It's nothing to write home about. And the third is called, Henry James. He has nothing to say. Yes but he says it so well. This one is called A Thought. My mind has a mind of its own. And the last one is called A Definition. Question. What do you call someone who steals a whole lot of money and then gives a little of it back? Answer. A philanthropist. 
This next poem takes place in the same neighborhood where this reading is being held, the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which is the area I grew up in <clears throat> until I was 11. It's called Manhattan, the Fall. The air is cold as peppermint in the early evening. Apartment building shadows work their way up West End Avenue, brick facades. The sunlight not quite juicy enough, an orange out of season. It soaks the ornaments on the upper stories, window arches, granite cornices, the sky denim-colored, faded near the horizon. I prowl the west side, shop for produce and a place to live. Shooting the rapids of Broadway, street crossing, pedestrian traffic, I pass a woman, and for a second, our glances freeze together. Everything seems so possible. The next poem is about a situation that a number of people I, I know are involved in. Uh, I know several couples where there's a man who is hesitant about having children and a woman who's very eager to have children. And uh, this poem is about the ambivalence involved in that situation. It's called The Invisible Child. The child I will never have walks by my side in the botanic garden asking me what deciduous means and I can't remember. The child I'll never raise sprints into the kitchen. She grabs my hand, stands on my toes in her stocking feet and says, give me a ride. She wakes a few hours after bedtime with worry mixed into her face and cheers up immediately when no one sends her right back to bed. On Sunday morning, she scissors pictures of animals out of magazines and glues them into fields of blue, red, or orange paper. She's first in her class, teacher's pet, but will never admit that she likes school. The child I'll never have and do not want won't wash her face or put on a pair of jeans before we go to the party. The child I don't want wraps herself in tantrums when I tell her she can't have a friend sleep over on a school night and she hasn't even started her homework yet. The PTA meeting at her school is on the day I need to finish a piece that's deadlined the next morning. And she continues to leave her roller skates in the center of the living room even after the fourth warning. The child I'll never have turns and smiles at a joke and suddenly I recognize your face. She climbs a, a chair to reach the bananas on top of the refrigerator and falls off her wails of pain pure as a knife cutting flesh. You brush her forehead with your palm and carry her to bed where her tears finally stop when you mention an ice pack. Mornings you plait the dark hair of that child I'll never father as she spoons granola into her mouth telling you that her music teacher is weird. The child I'll never have sits next to you on the bus, visible only to us, 
her knees on the seat, she faces the window. With all her senses, she listens at night as you try to read her to sleep, or she snuggles with you by the light of the TV, absent-mindedly snacking the corn you pop together. On Halloween, the child I'll never help conceive stays out late trick-or-treating with you at home, scared, ready to call the cops. Your heart and mine are uncoupling now because the child I'll never have has won you over with her tooth-missing smile, her recorder practice, and her stuffed koala, and you have finally grown to love her more than me. next poem is in a different mood. Uh, there was a time when I wanted to be a visual artist, and uh, <clears throat> this poem sort of comes out of those feelings partly, but more personal feelings too. It's called Portrait in Your Favorite Color. The crazy clarity of Sunday brunch. You excavate half a pink grapefruit while I rip a purple grape off the bunch. Just, just rinsed on your kitchen table. Your long, thick black hair shot with a few silver threads. Your arrowhead eyes a clear brown. Your rounded face and your soft marble body under the indigo bathrobe. I need to describe you in a way that's as unmistakable as what I feel for you. What we shared last winter was more than the cold we kept giving each other, more than the purple hips of roses steeping in pottery mugs. In the bath, your violet skin tinted by the light passing through the vinyl shower curtain. I like the way you care about the world that anger deeper than pink. If I could paint, I'd give you pale yellow swans and boats with vermilion sails floating on a lavender lake. I want another brush with your dark pink lips, that purple tongue fluttering in my mouth. You and I are baby boom babies. Our conscious memories began with the one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people-eater. In our early twenties, we swallowed purple haze. We tried to stand in the way of the war. If we'd met back then, how would we have known enough to hold on to each other?
stopping the car in what looked to be the middle of nowhere. Clara, standing on one of his cigarettes, could not smell a thing. Ahead of them, on a little rise just off, off the highway, a man was gesturing frantically. He knew, I don't know if I want to park here, Stanley said. Stepped out of the car, sank and then tripped into a whitish muck. Clara gasped and the overpowering stench of sour milk had held the nose. Several thousand gallons of it from the truck, overturned hours before, was soaked into the mud. They did not go to the races that day. Stanley, glowering, cursing, and, to tell the truth, stinking, spent the rest of the afternoon disinfecting himself and his vehicle and accusing Clara of giggling at him. I'm not giggling, she advised. I just bet you five dollars for going to McDonald's and everyone in the place starts sniffing. That had been ten months ago, before Mrs. Darlinger became ill, and before Clara had ever dreamed that she would live in New York. After her grandmother's death, Stanley had phoned to announce that he was driving down. But Clara had explained that there was no time. She had to hurry and pack and move. And as she stood in Mrs. Darlinger's large, quiet apartment, filled with costly antiques, and told him to stay in Tallahassee, she imagined him there at the other end of the line, listening, tall and blonde and handsome like the eternal beach boy, and wondering if he should just drive down in his noisy red Chevy anyway. In the end, he did, despite her protest, and she missed her friend.